Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon Podcast. Uh, this week, I have the pleasure of interviewing Bob Proctor, who is the CEO of Link Labs. And we're going to be talking about scaling indoor location systems, IoT systems. So, uh, Bob, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Steve. I have admired your company for some time, and uh, I, I think uh, for a number of reasons, uh, you've combined uh, some really excellent technical brains with, I think, some very deft uh, management and uh, strategy and focus. And uh, um, so um, uh, I'd like you to introduce Link Labs uh, in, in a moment, but I think where I'd like to focus the discussion is all of the things that go into scaling these solutions that we talk about so much on this podcast, which is uh, we talk a lot about real-time location systems and uh, IoT and so forth. And I, I think a lot of companies have started and failed, uh, but I think some of the ones that have been very successful have, have been able to build a full-stack solution that really does scale. So I want to drill into that. But maybe we should start off with you introducing people to Link Labs. Uh, uh, let's start there. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, Link Labs is a end-to-end -end solution provider for asset tracking and monitoring. Uh, and our really mission is to make it easy and affordable to track and monitor anything anywhere. Uh, and those adjectives are chosen purposefully we want to make it easy. Uh, it's got to be easy to use. Everyone today expects a consumer product-like experience just works out of the box, highly interoperable with third-party technologies. But in my view, IoT is about affordability. Uh, all these assets that people want to track and monitor are largely fielded today. It's a question of why are they not tracked or monitored? Mostly it's about cost and bringing the cost down enough to drive ROI. So we really focus on those two things from an end-to-end -end perspective. Very good. And if you were to, when you sell a solution to customers, um, what, what are you selling them? What are the core building blocks of that solution? Ooh, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, um, so there's the solution itself. And oftentimes that involves everything from tags and sensors through to a local uh, network that could be uh, an LP WAN network layer or a VLE mesh technology or something that uh, delivers through, you know, directly to cellular. Um, there can be an aggregation layer through the cellular networks. Um, we typically use the, what I call purpose-built IoT network layer technologies, you know, CAD-M and NB-IoT uh, through to cloud platforms and device management and on to uh, user interface, uh, which might include workflows and those types of things. 
that would be the kind of the core product piece of what we have to deliver. But in addition, you have to deliver the everything that wraps around that product to make it scalable. Mm-hmm. Supply chain and operations on getting hardware into the U.S. Typically, uh, if it's sourced out of uh, uh, outside of the U.S., you know, for most of our scalings happened here. Um, working with a 3PL to kit it for specific facilities, making sure it gets delivered, handling returns. So there's a lot on just on the operations side, mm-hmm. uh, and there's you know financial aspects that tie to all of that, uh, and financial integrations that need to happen. Then you have field installation, training, certifications, auditing, monitoring, tools, uh, you know, phone-based tools, web-based tools, that kind of thing. Uh, for field operations, then you've got to build a kind of a support capability for fielded product, uh, and there's everything that goes into that. And then you also have to have you know, the more traditional DevOps and support for monitoring actual uh, so there's there's a lot that wraps around the actual product. And how far up the stack do you go? So tags, uh, infrastructure, connectivity, support. What about in the application layer? We go end to end. Our application layer is very sophisticated. We really use all the state of the art tools from um, you know basic. Uh, uh, tables and reports and maps, but you know, the mapping now has gotten quite sophisticated. We integrate with you know, third parties where we can do seamless indoor-outdoor mapping. So you could take a what you might typically view as a, a, a map that you would zoom in on. You can zoom in on a facility, you can zoom into the floor plans within that facility, and you can find assets inside specific rooms or your office. But I can also track that, you know, leaving your facility over the road into a distribution center through that distribution center over the road again to say an end customer. Um, so seamless indoor outdoor tracking uh, types of capabilities connected into all the search sort tabulation AI type tools kits that are available as well. It's a pretty, uh, a lot of work has gone into that. Um, and you guys have been known as pioneers in using all sorts of radio technologies. So I, I think there's some companies that do what you just described, and they don't have RF experts. They don't have people that are kind of building things from the, the ground up. Uh, but you do. You did some of the pioneering work in uh, with LoRa, the, the long-range uh, uh, wide area uh, uh, technology, low power. Um, um, is that necessary? Why, uh, why, why go to the trouble of assembling a team that can go that deep rather than just kind of using off-the-shelf building blocks? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, some of it is um, where we started, but I think um, if we were to start anew, I would go there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we started as an LP WAN network layer technology with the first certified LoRa products in the US. Um, and then as the carriers entered with CAD-M, uh, we partnered and had the first certified CAD-M products. Uh, but what we learned through that is, uh, if you think about, again, affordability of an IoT solution, this is where our partnership with, with Williot, you know, really makes a lot of sense too. Anything times millions of tags uh, starts to drive the, the ROI model. You know, multiply any number times, you know, millions, and you're like, oh, I got to worry about the cost. And really, that cost is not just the cost of the tag; it's the, the total cost of ownership over the lifetime of that tag. And that very quickly takes you into uh, for anything that's battery powered, either you know, with a tag or through some of the intermediate layers what's the battery life of that device? Um, because the battery replacement cycle drives cost tremendously. And then also what is the uh, data uh, related costs um, for transport of that data? And I, I like to, to point out that the data costs of IoT are extraordinarily high. Um, you know, a, a megabyte on a CAD-M plan might be, you know, order of magnitude a dollar a month. Well, your consumer cell phone is probably, you know, for that same plan, about a penny a month. Uh, IoT has this golden 
uh, coffee stir straw, you know, uh, size data pipe. It's very expensive and very narrow. So you really have to be worried about data efficiency as well as uh, battery uh, and power consumption efficiency. Um, all that is resting in the wireless network layer technologies. So you've got to be really smart in those areas in order to drive down cost, which again opens up the promise of IoT and makes it real. How, uh, what are you seeing the, in terms of your, your own business about the backhaul? Is it going over wired or wireless networks? You were talking about the cost of MBIoT. And, uh... Yeah, for us, it's um, predominantly wireless um, because we're looking at where the big volumes uh, and a lot of the promise in IoT are supply chain logistics, um, uh, shipping, transport, uh, those types of things where the, the goods and the containers that ship those goods are all moving. Mm -hmm. and, you, they're, and they're moving through a very fragmented supplier distribution chain where you don't really have the luxury of installing any kind of infrastructure. So you've got to have your network layer technologies essentially moving with the assets. Mm -hmm. So you're putting uh, gateway devices, for use of a better term, into vehicles, but also into static. Uh, to, to what extent? So Let's, let me ask that question. Then I want to ask kind of about later on in the life of the product. Uh, are, are you putting your devices into vehicles? Uh, we're not in the kind of traditional ODGB port vehicle fleet telematics mm -hmm. uh, space. We're more, you know, we think of it as, you know, trucking is wildly fragmented and, uh, you know, the, uh, you really want to be on the pallet that has the goods on it. Uh, so I think of more as a pallet or a tote or a crate uh, becomes a IoT platform, a mobile IoT platform. And if you can have a mobile gateway that lasts five, 10 years integrated into that, uh, now you can have low cost tags and items at the package level riding on top of that. Uh, so that's where, you know, again, I think our partnership um, holds tremendous uh, commercial potential. And, and what about when you get to the destination, if it's a store or a hotel or what, wherever the location is, um, are your devices running over Wi-Fi or are they using cellular connections uh, there? Yeah, our devices are meant to essentially take advantage of the most power efficient and low cost uh, available backhaul capability. So mm -hmm. for example, if you have a, uh, a facility you own, you can establish a LP WAN network layer and the devices will backhaul through that, typically connecting uh, via Bluetooth. Um, if there's a local uh, Bluetooth enabled, uh, what we call in our terminology, an access point. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that access point can backhaul yeah, any type of network technologies to the cloud. Um, and that's more power efficient than uh, if that's not available and you're in a third party site where you don't have an opportunity to put an infrastructure, then it'll backhaul through the uh, cellular, onboard cellular uh, capability. But why not just have every device go onto the Wi-Fi? Uh, that's a possibility we tend to uh, not see that in the market because again, you've got a highly fragmented uh, supply or distribution chain. And those Wi-Fi networks all have different, you know, security and credentialing associated with them. And you as the provider of a capability, uh, it just takes somebody in that chain to change the password or credentialing and your whole system stops functioning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, reliance on compliance of third party, you know, many third party IT departments, uh, just not a good um, kind of uh, reliable solution. Okay. So, in, you know, we'd like to, we'd like to say, look, you know, you, you don't want to be relying on that Wi-Fi capability. And also, you know, Wi-Fi is expensive to put in areas where it doesn't exist. You know, a lot of warehouses might have it in the corner near the warehouse manager's uh, office, but it will not be ubiquitous throughout a warehouse or a factory floor, uh, in which case you do need to establish a network layer. Uh, and beyond Wi-Fi, what we've also found is, um, Cellular coverage is really designed for people with phones. 
that can move to an area where there is good coverage. You know, how many times have you walked outside a building to get a good signal? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, things don't do that. You know, <laughs> the forklift driver puts it in the corner of the warehouse, and if there's no coverage there, there's no coverage there. So you need a very cost-effective and easily deployable way to augment coverage as well. And that's where the LPWAN uh, technologies do fit in really nicely into an overall solution architecture. So it's really, it's quite a sophisticated cocktail of radio technologies that you're bringing together. It's, uh, uh, and, uh, I, you know, the theme of our discussion is achieving scalability. Uh, and it's kind of interesting how sophisticated you need to get in order to do something simple, which is to help to cover a huge chain of hotels or, or, or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's um, taken us a long time. We've been at this for five or six years, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've had to solve these problems in order to scale with some of our customers. And what stage have you got to in scaling your, your customers? Where are you seeing success? Yeah, our, our biggest success has been in the hospitality industry, certainly. Uh, you know, that's on, uh, for all practical purposes, on pause with COVID. Um, and that was really because there have been, um, uh, if you're in a sales world, you call it an urgency driver, uh, but really compliance drivers in that market. Many state and local governments mandated a uh, housekeeper safety solution, essentially for uh, mm-hmm. housekeepers and hotels, um, where they could essentially have a, for our solution has a pendant, they can squeeze a pendant, you have to identify the specific room they're in and be able to notify security. And it has to not reside on the Wi-Fi network uh, because it's just not reliable enough across the footprint of a thousand hotels. Uh, so we scale that solution to several hundred or well, a hundred thousand plus hotel rooms, not quite at a couple hundred thousand yet. And ultimately I think that'll end up in, uh, uh, you know, close to a million hotel rooms. We're certainly contracted to, to get there. That's that's very significant scale. And I, I think, yeah, as we're focusing on scale, it seems like one of the things you need is a, a compelling event. And legislation is, uh, is one. And I've seen other companies that have been using this uh, safety of, uh, of, of staff members as a driver to, to get some success. I remember in the early days when I was going on a lot of sales training courses, there were all sorts of acronyms to remind business people on how to qualify given an opportunity. And one of my one of my favorites was Scotsman, which basically stands for um, "Do you have a solution to an important problem? Um, you know, who's the competition? Do you know what the other alternatives are? Um, uh, uh, is it original?" Uh, have you, are you differentiated? And the T in Scotsman was time. And time was basically, do you understand the timescales of this project? But is there a compelling event why it needs to be done this month, this year? Uh, and I think legislation is clearly one of them. Are, are there any other, and just because people are going to wonder what the rest of Scotsman is. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> size, is it big enough? Money does the person have a budget? A is access access to the decision maker, and N is kind of a compelling uh, need with an ROI that's associated with it. But yeah. going back to the T in Scotsman, what what are the other drivers that you're seeing that are actually driving people to spend money on IoT? Um, yeah, so let me talk about hospitality. I want to come back to sort of where we think the you know our focus um, more broadly or the the, the larger. You know, uh, commercial opportunity, impact opportunity. But in hospitality, there's a couple other ones. Um, you know, this is really about employee safety. Obviously, the unions are behind it. Um, and that's become part of collective bargaining agreements as well. Mm-hmm. So there's an urgency driver around uh, that as well in compliance with those agreements. And then finally, it becomes part of the brand promise. You just can't be a large employer uh, looking to recruit in a, in and say that you don't care about your people, right? So it's, uh, we're going to deploy this capability because it's part of our human resources brand promise uh, mm-hmm. in the employment uh, market. Uh, so, you know, those three combined uh, really created an enormous urgent, urgency driver to say, we're going to implement this in all hotels by you know, the end of this year, mm-hmm. uh, you know, full stop. 
which has been great uh, in the hospitality. In the other areas, you know, I continue to be astounded by the the sheer dollars and cents and hard dollar ROI that is available from asset tracking and monitoring um, and just um, how uh, much low hanging fruit there still is. Um, you, know, you take something, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples is sort of, you know, take something like, you know, beer kegs, just to pick on a, a random uh, vertical. And you say, well, how much money is there in tracking and monitoring beer kegs? Where's the value created? Well, there's obviously lost and not recovered steel, but that's really just the beginning. Uh, there's out of stock situations at you know, bars and restaurants where your product is just not being served. That's lost sales. There is uh, uh, delivery route optimization to you know, get uh, you know, the right uh, uh, beer to the right places. Uh, mm -hmm. There is uh, brand uh, compliance. What if this stuff sits on a, uh, a dock shelf or something, uh, gets hot, gets served? You know, that's, that's impacting your brand. There is understanding demand and production planning and doing a better job actually forecasting uh, demand because there's no real-time demand signal now, you know, back into from a production perspective. Uh, so as you get deeper and deeper into it, you're like, you know, there are many drivers of ROI here, all basically enabled by the data of where is it and did the temperature go out of bounds? And we see that over and over again in uh, the supply chain logistics space. I'm interested in, I find these uh, examples of ROI fascinating because you end up learning, you peel up the, the layers of the onion and you get under the covers of these businesses and you realize, uh, I mean, it's very exciting when you can have that sort of conversation and you also can have conversations about multi-pathing of radio waves and signal propagation. There's a lot. You have to be kind of a bit of a renaissance man to uh, cover all that. How do you, I mean, tell me a bit about how you end up having the kind of conversations that lead you to understand those ROIs. It's, uh, uh, seems like it might be challenging to span the technical and the business. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that I set out my career-wise to sort of span the technical and the business, right? But with a yeah. technical background going into a, a long training arc of maybe 20 years in the business world, really not doing things, something with like technology. Back. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I think from a customer perspective, it starts usually with only one aspect of the ROI. Um, it could be simply, um, I mean, I've seen it from a loss and recovery perspective, glass shipping racks have been treated, you know, there might be anywhere between a thousand and three thousand dollars for a, a rack for industrial glass. Think about the, you know, the big panes of glass you see in office buildings, like, you know, the one behind you, you know, those things are shipped on racks. Um, and the racking itself is quite expensive and in many ways are they have, you know, up until now been in some ways thought of like paper clips that are $1,000 each. You know, you'll look to recover them, but you don't recover all of them. And uh, you see companies losing, you know, millions, if not tens of millions of dollars on lost racking. And so the person who's in charge of that might start there. But then you quickly realize, well, customer support is really interested in understanding where the where the glass that didn't go somewhere was supposed to go, or uh, or you end up talking to the production people saying, you know, we need a particular SKU of racking, or we can't actually run production today because we didn't recover enough racks uh, mm -hmm. to have anywhere to put the glass that we're manufacturing. Uh, you know, so we see um, typically one pain point. Uh, being the uh, cause for initiation of a conversation. And mm -hmm. then um, you, it broadens to, um, to many more over time. And when you go in to these accounts, are you, so you basically stop when you find one that's big enough to drive a, a project. How do you manage scope? Because it must be tempting to, where, where do you stop uh, in, in terms of the, uh, on one hand, you want the biggest ROI as possible, so scope gets very big. On the other hand, you want something that's achievable, the quick, uh, the, the 
quick win thing. How have you managed that in uh, uh, achieving scale? Because our, you know, true scale requires breadth, but it also requires progress, which requires... Which yeah, requires no, that's a great power. question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm probably overly influenced from my consulting days of... Um, our approach really is what we call a journey partner. Uh, and we really need to work with the customer uh, as a as a partner, an extension of their team to understand, you know, just the, the reality of their situation and stage gate any uh, work we do with them around, look, you know, you, we need to start by building trust with you. Let's do something small uh, that delivers impact, shows you what we can do. Uh, after that, you know, you need to start to think about building the ROI case and gathering the data to prove ROI. And so we look to get to a scope or scale that says, you know, let's, you know, now that you know that we can do what we say we can do, let's show that we can actually deliver value in a reasonable way. So it's a way of, you know, I think the way we think about it is from a customer's perspective, they're looking to manage their risk. Um, and they manage that through a series of project stages. And so we try not to go in with, hey, here's 10 ways you can save money in the ROI case and you need to go straight to a million assets right away. We tend to go in with, let's understand your appetite for risk and the strategic importance of this uh, to your business. And then we'll appropriately stage gate um, uh, and scope a project to kind of fit in your kind of risk profile. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good. And, I mean, that potentially is taking a long time. Um, and, and I always end up going to back to Jeffrey Moore and crossing the chasm and uh, the kind of the bowling pin metaphor where you start off with one and then, you know, and you're, as you cross the chasm, then things get faster. Where are we if we're crossing the chasm and, and, the, and the chasm is in IoT adoption? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I, I, Nirvana is we connect everything to the internet. If you know where yeah. everything is, then suddenly costs go down, sales go up, um, capital is more efficiently used. Have we crossed the chasm? Are we in the middle of it? Where, where do you think we are? I think we are a toehold on the other side. Okay. Um, you know, the promise of all the various components of this technology, um, you know, they're, they're all kind of beyond Gen 1 now. You know, there's a lot of hype, and then you get to Gen 1, um, and that kind of delivers on the hype, but it's expensive, and it's missing some features and capabilities, and it doesn't connect with third-party things, and and you can... Uh, you, you spend a lot of time solving a lot of problems saying, hey, you know, in order to really deliver on the promise, we got to get to Gen 2 or Gen 3. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have now, you know, stitched together in many instances, Gen 2 or Gen 3 of the various aspects of a solution. And um, I'm to the point where I'm like, this is pretty powerful. Uh, and it's working you know, more and more out of the box. Uh, with massive scalability and a very you know, reasonable price point. Um, and we're starting to see also, I think, uh, more broad-based market demand. Uh, you know, it's, this is becoming a strategic initiative for many more companies. So um, I think we're, you know, I look at it from a technology perspective. 
and believe that we're basically there. Um, I think from a market perspective, the state of maturity of the technology is not fully appreciated yet. Right. So I guess one way of calibrating this is who are you selling to typically? If, if we were, if you were wrong and we're still firmly on the other side of the, the uh, chasm, then you'd be selling to innovators and early adopters, quirky mavericks who are trying to do something because it's different and have a strategic advantage because no one else is doing what they're doing. And if we've really crossed the chasm, then you'll be selling to the early majority and maybe uh, uh, who do you, who do you, who's buying your technology? And yeah, I think of it from a um, ROI perspective, and you can kind of back that into a intrinsic value of the asset perspective. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, I, I often talk about, you know, if you had a, a $100,000, you know, piece of art or pallet of vaccines, that's probably already tracked, right? You stick a motorcycle battery and a cell phone and you'd figure out how to track that thing because uh, it's so valuable. You get down to a $10,000 you know, high-end computer server where you get lower down to a piece of list, uh, you know, least medical equipment at you know, the intrinsic value is you know, one to $5,000, these glass shipping racks, uh, powered wheelchairs we see. Um, you know, so you get into asset values that are, call it, you know, plus or minus $1,000 range. Uh, there, the ROI for tracking monetary of these things is really high because the asset value is really quite high. You get down to beer kegs, we're not there yet because uh, you still got to get farther down the cost curve um, to really make that um how much does a beer cake cost approximately? I, 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 don't, uh, I think it's between 50 and 100 bucks of steel. Um, okay. Yeah. So you've got, um, you know, you've got a ways to go to get down, down, down the curve. But, you know, there are a lot more. There may be, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, you know, hundreds of thousands of glass shipping racks. There are, you know, hundreds of millions of beer kegs and there are, you know, billions of, of wooden pallets, right? So, uh, it, it's all about getting down the cost curve to make the ROI work. So what we're seeing is we're coming down into that kind of sub thousand dollar range pretty nicely now. Mm -hmm. um, and where you're just seeing, hey, I'm looking for a solution. What do you have? We now have the ability to you know, help people stand up a demonstration capability and uh, with an out of the box uh, experience that you know, we're looking to deliver in under 60 seconds. Um, and uh, you know, people are like, this is great. I want to deploy it. Uh, yeah. You get into, again, uh, if I was going to be working in the, uh, you know, we don't act, have any even inquiries in the beer keg world. So it's funny I use that as an example, but I think we'll move there. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, and the reason we don't is because we need to do more with your tags. So, <laughs> right? it's, it is the cost of the tag, right, to make that. Yeah. Um, that business case, uh, but the volumes there are huge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to our point, you know, we've just started working together as we get this integration, you know, nailed down and have, uh, again, it's the wrapper, the supply chain, the operations. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time working on how do you make these things, you know, with Avery printable and, and mm -hmm. you know, mass volumes and getting to your second generation of technology. Uh, but we're kind of there, right? I mean, it's, uh, the technology is kind of there. Um, and so I think we'll see more and more, you know, significant scale trials and pilots in these lower cost assets. And so, uh, but we're, in my view, we're kind of crossing the chasm by asset value, if you will. And we're seeing ah, it yeah, at yeah. Uh, the higher price assets. We've sort of crossed the chasm, the really low, uh, low cost assets. Um, we are, we're, we're on our way there, but we're not there yet. Yeah, we debate about tracking. Uh, some of us feel like we should be tracking um, uh, bottles of beer. Others of us think we need to be tracking bottles of spirits. Uh, um, and uh, Right, exactly. It's just a question of uh, how much can you drive down the cost curve to make it effective for the Yeah, yeah. Um, are you, uh, do you, who's, 
who in the organization are you normally selling to? Are you selling to innovation teams or an operations manager that's got a problem that uh, your technology can fix? It's both. Uh, great question, but it's both. Um, we see, again, with the more uh, you know, kind of early um, majority client space, that's more operations folks. Uh, and more the innovation teams when they're looking at uh, broad corporate transformation. Yeah, very good. And uh, so how, uh, how big is your company? Uh, we're about uh, 40 people today and we're growing yeah. like crazy. So, uh, and, and so how does uh, so, uh, a company, there's only so fast you can grow that company. How are you looking to scale up in terms of your go-to-market? We do most of our go-to-market through partners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and frankly, you know, what we found is technology partners um, have developed a component of an end-to-end solution at various levels. And it's everything from, you know, uh, Bluetooth chip and cellular modem providers to hardware providers to network layer technology providers, you know, the tag ecosystem providers, device management, mapping companies. A lot, there are a lot of great components of the solution that have built uh, customer relationships and demand. And the vast majority of demand in the market is asset tracking and monitoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by being interoperable with that broad ecosystem of technology partners, uh, the first thing we're doing is really uh, partnering with them on their go-to-market and picking up a lot of the uh, uh, customers that they've developed to you know, various stages. We also have uh, channel partnerships you know, with big players on the SI side. Our, our deepest relationship is with AT&T. Uh, and there are times, you know, I think of it as, you know, those are best utilized when there's also value add from the channel partner, uh, either through field operations, you know, the, as we've scaled the hospitality industry, uh, their ability to have feet on the ground in, you know, hundreds of hotels you know, two weeks later, you know, across uh, the entire U.S., um, you know, really strong relationships, ability to manage that. Uh, you know, security-related services we don't provide. Uh, if things escalate outside of, um, uh, you know, kind of a core technology into a managed service, you know, those types of things. So um, what we find the most challenging from a partnership, and we've, we've kind of done a few, and then, um, you know, it's always tricky to find the right opportunity or on the pure systems integrator that we're in some ways as an end-to-end solution provider we compete with and the margin stacking uh, takes you down a road of, well, we just made this solution no longer cost effective because because you know somebody's basically not really adding a value, valuable service; they're just a, a straight channel partner. So we found that um, from a go-to-market perspective, you know, working with our technology partners is uh, you know, been the uh, easiest and the best, uh, followed by when a partner uh, like an AT&T has a, um, a value-added capability that the client also needs. There are other um, s- providers, uh, vendors, it's a horrible name vendor, but uh, we're vendors, um, yeah. who have been very successful working with the systems integrators, the Accentures, the Deloitte's and so forth. Um, yeah, SAP comes to mind, uh, going way back, Lotus Notes. Uh, mm-hmm. As those companies had like huge boons working uh, with them. What, why? Uh, but I, what you say makes sense. You, you, you're uh, you provide an end-to-end solution. So having someone charge a million dollars to uh, figure out, um, you know, what the solution should look like when you've already got something, it kind of it's a waste of money, isn't it? So uh, maybe maybe your problem is that your solution is too good. If it needed a huge amount of tailoring and wasn't wasn't so complete, there would be a role for the systems integrators. How, how do you account for that? Um, uh, you know, why, why not you and those other technology providers? Well, I think, you know, we can make it work as, as uh, you know, I think uh, we have made it work, but it's back to, I like to think of them as uh, a systems integrator really is, uh, is, has a value add. And you have to ask the question, what is the value add? 
mm-hmm. so that you can get the economics to work. You know, if I go back to you know my enterprise software days 20 years ago, you know the the systems integrators I used to think about was predominantly driven by uh, there was so much implementation work for integration that you couldn't scale your labor nearly fast enough as a uh, enterprise software company. So you had to work through a systems integrator that was really doing a lot of the implementation services related work yes. um, as the value add. But as you start to bring that implementation services down to you know, ideally you know, close to zero, there's less and less work for them in the overall context of the solution. Right. And that's, you know, to me, the goal of IoT. And one of the things that's really nice about asset tracking is, you know, in the, in the oversimplified sense, you slap a tag on something and you're done with the, <laughs> yeah. and, and then I'm giving you a, you know, a report and the analytics and, you know, with the APIs and the cloud infrastructure, you know, connecting these systems together with microservices today is, um, you know, a much simpler task than it was, you know, years ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, our, it's a question of, you know, where's the value add? Um, yeah. And that's where I go to, you know, field services uh, uh, along with, uh, you know, ongoing monitoring, managed services, uh, or, you know, getting into some of the uh, uniqueness of verticals, you know, we, you know, or integration, you know, we don't, for example, integrate into all the different uh, trucking companies to set up shipping lanes for returnable assets, right? But we provide the data flow and an SI can play in there. So it's just a question of, as we mature a little bit, developing those partnerships where it's where the core technology, the solution isn't marked up, mm-hmm. but instead, you know, ancillary services are sold and that's how they make their money. That makes a ton of sense. What about analytics partners? Because one of the things about IoT is you're suddenly creating all this data that didn't exist, or does your solution provide the, the actionable uh, results in a way that doesn't require a lot of analytics? And uh, do you see synergies there? Yes, um, you know, we have a lot of the analytic capabilities ourselves um, as well, um, you, know, you know, straight up through the, the AI. Uh, capabilities. Um, and so again, it's an interesting question, sort of analytics on what we've actually built our, our platform to ingest any source of third party data mm-hmm. uh, to provide those analytics. And, you know, most of the tools from, you know, as an example, uh, Google, for example, on their search capabilities and their uh, AI capabilities have all been sort of open sourced and uh, are leverageable into, uh, you know, a backend platform. And so we've integrated all of that capability. Um, so, um, you know, I find that we can go pretty far with what we've got. Uh, we like to do an exercise with uh, uh, our customers, which we just call a magic wand. Uh, you know, let's sit at the board and if you could magic wand your ideal report or your ideal alert, um, and who would be told what, when, what happens, you know, and have a working session with a magic wand. Usually it's less than a day to actually turn that into real reports, real alerts and capabilities, uh, which is a, a lot of fun. Um, and we can deliver custom reports and workflow capabilities now through our UI to an end customer um, in very short turnaround. So what used to take months back in the day when we were, you know, if you were building like enterprise software is now, you know, an hours long task. So the speed to create that is just amazing. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, unfortunately we're running out of time. I, I, there's a ton of stuff I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, your, your, your Link Labs is doing some amazing work back. If we go back down the stack on, uh, in terms of really precise location using, uh, uh, Bluetooth technology. So uh, uh, let's resolve to get back together again and, and talk about that. But uh, in in the meantime, uh, Bob, thanks very much for telling us a bit about uh, how you've managed to scale uh, Link Labs. And I think there's a lot of really interesting lessons uh, learned for other people watching. So well, thank you, Steve. Yeah, and I would welcome the opportunity to talk about what we're doing on the, on the Bluetooth location side. It's a whole nother topic, so that'd be great. Appreciate it.
I noticed you have a PhD in applied physics. That's uh, correct. What uh, what was the what's the application that you uh, ended up uh, studying? What was your? I ended up working in ultrafast uh, lasers. Actually, worked in uh, designed and built uh, at the time a laser that set the world record for the shortest pulse of light directly generated from a laser. Uh, huh. it's just, how do you shorten? How what's what does it take to shorten a pulse of a laser beam? Uh, it takes nonlinearities in the uh, behavior of the media that you're doing. So basically, the electric field as the pulse gets shorter and shorter, the electric field gets higher and higher, and that starts to alter the index or refraction of the material. And so you get you can get a reinforcing effect that can lead to a very short pulse of light. It's pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. And how did you get from doing that to McKinsey? Is that where you? <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I read about a guy who uh, helped invent the thing called the soliton uh, in fiber optic communications uh, for, uh, at Bell Labs, uh, which kept uh, uh, the need for batteries to be used as repeaters and undersea fiber optic cables. Uh, essentially allows the pulses to not disperse uh, through fiber uh, okay. over you know ten thousand kilometers or more of fiber, and I uh, learned how much money he made versus what the CEO made, <laughs> and said, you know, maybe I want to be on the business side of this equation. <laughs> and McKinsey was a great way to do it. They had a new program for taking PhDs and turning them into business people, and I signed up for that and was off uh, in in the business world. And how how did you get to Link Labs from that? I imagine it's a fairly sick, sort of um, long path, but uh, yeah, for me, I'd always been at the interested at the intersection of technology and business, um, and always been very entrepreneurial. Um, so really focused my career on starting and growing companies uh, and gaining experience at large companies, which I certainly got with McKinsey and. Uh, intermediate scale companies with the corporate executive board, a couple hundred million in revenue, but very entrepreneurial and was fortunate enough to do pretty well with a couple of um, early stage uh, companies and became a full-time angel investor and advisor in 2008. Uh, and I started looking for opportunities at the, at the very beginning, centered around what I called a critical mass of world-class talent. Uh, the belief being, uh, if you can get a critical mass of world-class talent together, you can figure out the product, the strategy, the, uh, you know, I brought a lot of marketing um, from my experience sort of post-McKinsey, uh, early stage finance was what I was in the middle of, uh, and start to um, build a company. So I looked for groups of people looking to start companies that were really had deep technical competence and started to focus my investment activities there. Link Labs was one of those companies. Uh, and then about two years later, the technical team said, hey, we need a CEO. Um, and I was basically about seven or eight years out of a corporate job and said, ah, you know, okay, I'll do one more run. So here I am. I'm going to love it too, actually. Yeah, I, I've, I've worked at, I think Williot is kind of similar to, to, to that. The founders are like super, super smart engineers and uh, basically surrounded themselves by other engineers. I think almost everyone in the company with uh, there's like three exceptions out of 50 people has got some kind of engineering degree. Um, and I, I worked at another company for many years that was an ama amazing company. And they were founded basically based on the people uh, and then they started looking around for something to do together and uh, ended up developing the world's first symmetric multiprocessor computer that was used for commercial applications and eventually uh, got bought by IBM. But the, the, the start was about the people. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you see that over and over again. So I, that was basically the core of my investment thesis and the, the foundation of, uh, of Link Labs. So, um, uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I traditionally ask our guests about their musical tastes for no particularly good reason. But are you, um, do you enjoy music? Or uh... I do. Um, and, uh, you know, given my age, I'm more of a classic rock kind of guy. I, mean, I certainly yeah. listen to much newer music, a lot of it. Um, but if I had to pick three songs to take to Mars, they would be definitely in the classic rock genre. <laughs> All right. And what did you choose? 
you know, it's funny. I had a hard time choosing because there's so many. <laughs> but I would probably uh, pick uh, from Boston, uh, More Than a Feeling. Okay. Uh, a little bit of Fleetwood see. Mac. Uh, uh, probably, um, uh, uh, gosh, what would I pick out of a, a Fleetwood Mac? Um, uh, I'll come back to that one in a second. Okay. All right. Uh, and then uh, Dire Straits, maybe Sultan's a Swing, or oh. uh, I was listening to Spirit of Radio. I don't know if you ever had that on your podcast or not from Russia. No. no, no. Oh, there's a uh, there's a lyric in there about uh, in, invisible airwaves crackling with life. You know, <laughs> of course, with, in the IoT space. <laughs> That's a great choice. <laughs> I thought you know maybe that's got to be part of uh, <laughs> part of what you take with you. Yeah. Well, uh, occasionally when good things happen, which they seem to happen fairly regularly where we work, uh, we um, celebrate by people get a choice of buying some vinyl because we've got a vinyl record player here at the office and uh, someone chose Dire Straits. And I've really been enjoying it. It's been, yeah. 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 Boston's first album is probably what my favorite sort of album from growing uh, up. Uh, but, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 